I'm Katie Bennett-Stanton, a senior B2B marketer with 20 years experience across the UK, United States and Asia Pacific. Last year, I was lucky enough to spend three months with Deloitte in Chicago. During that time, I was delighted to have the opportunity to spend time with a number of global experts. Throughout that period, I interviewed a range of thought leaders and shared their thought-provoking, relevant and influential takeaways weekly. Now that I'm back in Melbourne, the Katie Talks conversation with influencers continues. And today is a great one. I'm talking to Matt Dunkley, who is the National Business Editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Matt, welcome. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much, Matt. There are plenty of movies that show the hype and mystique around a salacious scandal. Take us through the anatomy of an unfolding scandal and how do you go from tip-off to publish? Well, the great thing about our job is actually it's, it's never the same. There is no formula in a way. There are some common traits. Right? So a scandal can, an exclusive scandal, which is what we're talking about, right? These yeah. investigations that we surface and everyone goes, wow, where did that come from? Mm. There's all sorts of places that can come from. One of my personal favourites is when a trusted contact rings you and says, now, you didn't get this from me. It's one of the best sentences you can ever hear as a journalist. <laughs> it usually means that it's something really good. Um, you get anonymous uh, emails. That's mm -hmm. very common these days. Yeah. Someone just will contact us and say, I want to talk to you about an issue uh, out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Or if we've written about something, we'll put a little note in there saying, tell us your story. We get inundated that way. Okay. We also will we'll have um, post. Post is very reliable in this digital mm -hmm. age. Post can't be traced. Yes. So if you want to anonymously leak something, a letter to a journalist in the post is a really very good way to do it. Uh, and then there's just the, um, uh, the internet is the other thing I was going to say. So people will contact us directly and say they would like to talk to us about something, they would like to send us something. Once you're at that point, once you've got the, the tip off or um, some information, a bit of a leak, the next step is always going to be verification. Sure. So you have to figure out what have we got. You have to figure out is it actually real. Mm -hmm. So there are strange people out there who will send, will craft and manufacture a document to make it look real and send it to you and say, isn't this amazing? And it turns out the entire thing is totally bogus. Does that happen very often? No, not okay. often. But it's there are celebrated examples. So sure. when... When it once it has happened, I mean, the best example was actually a press release that was made up mm -hmm. by an environmental activist and sent to a lot of people involving ANZ, and a lot of people reported that because it looked so official, um, but it wasn't really. Oh yeah, and so those kinds of things okay. really sear into your mind as a journalist. Yeah, I bet they do. Right. So the next step is verification. Mm -hmm. You think, how do we make sure that this is for real? And if it was a person who's just contacted us or rung us or emailed us. We'll always seek to make contact with that person and try and step up. Are they, mm -hmm. are, we, are they worth investing our reputation in? Yes. So, and also is it fair to the target as well, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to figure out their motivation if is you can. Is it fair to the target? That's something you consider? Oh, of course, yeah. Okay. So if it's a disgruntled former employee, mm -hmm. okay. you want to figure out the extent to which what they're claiming is outrageous and terrible sure. is motivated by yeah. a vexatious purpose on their side. Mm -hmm. Or are they running a lawsuit and they're trying to leverage it into a better payment and so on? Yeah. These things are all part of a very important part of the whole process, which is being fair. So then once you've established that it's verifiable, then you go on to the part of actually putting it together. And that's that can be an awful lot of fun. 
So you think about how are we going to tell this story? So it could be, do we need video? Do we need photographs? Who of? Mm-hmm. So then you have to figure out where does everybody live if yes. they're not going to if they're not going to participate. So we can you know do the paparazzi thing and <laughs> and sit outside their house and take a photo and and we do do that. You know, it's, is that fun? Um, it's a great moment when the photographer rings and says, oh, "We got them! We got them this morning. They went to the beach. We took their photo." <laughs> it's um, and I know that, that perhaps people don't think of that in business journalism, but when mm. you're chasing um, people who particularly people who have misused other people's money, yes. um, financial planners and these kinds of things, they're often sort of um, they're elusive and reclusive because they don't want to, people to know what they look like. Mm-hmm. So it's a very important thing. It's a very powerful thing to get somebody's photograph. It also sends a message to everybody else. You don't do the wrong thing or you might end up on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or on the top of our website yes. with your photo. <laughs> yes, um, We're always looking with the images too to personal story so we get the victims if we can of whatever the case is so if it's a franchising story we've done the franchisees it's the employees if it's um the people who have lost their investments we always try always try to bring it to a personal level it helps a lot with the storytelling okay particularly particularly in business right where things could be a little esoteric or a bit dry yeah and then once you've gathered all that together and you've got the company or the person's side of it all then you have that great moment of packaging it all up mm-hmm. and telling everybody inside the organisation, all of the newspaper editors and the website editors about this great story that you have. And um, that's actually a bit of a marketing exercise. You know, you sure. have to bring yeah. some buzz yeah. to it because yeah. all the other editors are also there jostling for the same space and uh-huh. saying they've got a great story. Yeah. So you, you put all that together and you do it and then you have that wonderful time when you put it all to bed on the – usually they go live of a morning mm-hmm. – so you go to bed and then you wait for the next morning knowing that it's going to be huge. That's tremendous. And do you sleep well the night before? Is it, are you full of anticipation and adrenaline? We're usually pretty tired. Yeah. Like if, it's a, okay. if it's a really big one, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like you're quite glad to sort of just kick back and then, and then wait. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did the 7-Eleven one, I can still remember I got up very early. You know, Adele Ferguson blew the lid on um, 7-Eleven and yeah. how their model was pretty brutal. Um, they've now repaid something like $130 million in lost wages. Oh, actually, Deloitte was on that process. Yeah, Deloitte yeah. was on that process. And still is, I think. So yeah. the when we blew the lid on that, mm. I got up quite early that next morning and um, went to see if 7-Eleven was stocking our papers. Oh, Which, cause I, and cause tell I was, me, the, were they? Yeah, yeah, yeah they were there um, for sure. That's, I went a to a couple little, spots. that's a good little twist, Matt, to take a few photos of that. But you just can't wait to share it with the audience and and to see what change it yeah. brings. Like yeah. That's that's the real buzz of it is when it kicks on and things actually happen in response to what you've what you've done. That must be quite. Um, you might get quite a thrill out of that. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. And I'm very lucky to be working with some very good journalists. Yeah, you know the likes of Adele Ferguson, you know, and Sarah Dankett. There are people who have won a lot of awards. We're very lucky. Mm. Absolutely. Are there patterns in scandals? Yeah, there are. Absolutely. Um, hubris is definitely one. Okay. Um, the best place to look for that is in the banks. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was called out by the Banking Royal Commission. Yeah. So often the kind of assumption that, oh, we're making a lot of money, our investors are happy, things must be going pretty well. Um, the critics don't understand our business, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, cultures that repress bad news produce hubris because okay. people, 
problems are buried, they don't get discussed properly. Yep. So very often um, companies will be quite shocked when the their behaviour is exposed in the public realm and they get a very savage, often public response mm-hmm. because they can't understand it because they thought they were good. And they don't and they hang around in a bubble with people yeah. who are all kind of in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the torch comes on them and they have to, in a, in a rather confronting way, I think, say, oh, actually maybe we weren't doing very well. And the banks do seem to be getting their head around it. And I understand there's an awful lot of business being done and a lot of corporates now trying to ask those questions of themselves. Like, are we yeah. okay? Yeah. Where are our weak points? What are we like on dealing with problems? The hubris is absolutely, definitely one. Um, dishonesty is obviously a classic. <laughs> sure, right? sure. It's, sure. Got, it's got to be there it's every be time. There. Uh-huh. Um, another pattern that's so common is, um, and again, maybe this springs from hubris a bit or maybe it's just a tactic because mm. you see it in a lot of places, but just a, um, uh, an immediate attempt to belittle the problem or to um, talk it down. Okay. So... Uh, Classic example of this um, was the ATO's response to our investigation into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a joint venture between the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and Four Corners. And they were very aggressive in their response to that, um, talked about a few malcontented people and, and this sort of thing. Um, but we've seen it in, in lots of them. A lot of companies will just come out swinging that, oh, yes, we know about that problem, but it's a few bad apples. It's not really mm-hmm. an issue. Uh and then the more we dig, the more we find and the harder that defence becomes to maintain because one of the absolute patterns is that once we signal that we're interested in something, yes, it's extraordinarily rare that um, it doesn't produce a massive response from other people who are affected. Okay. So the um, number of emails that Adele gets when she publishes something around, say, RFG was another one, a big retail group, the number of franchisees who came to us telling their story mm-hmm. was incredible. Um, Cara Waters did another one on a franchise called Jump, same thing. Oh, we published a story recently. It's another example of how they can come from anywhere. Yes. We published a story about how public hospitals are harassing patients to get them to go private mm-hmm. when they're admitted. Okay. That sprung from a poster that I actually saw on the wall of, a, of the Royal Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. So we published that. We, we managed to convince ourselves that it was something of, a, of an issue, like the statistics to back it a bit. And we put it on the, the, ran on the front page of The Age. It ran high on the websites. And we put a little call-out box in the story online saying, tell us your story. Yes. And we just got flooded. Just hundreds, hundreds of emails. And the um, government initially... The response was pretty muted from the federal government. The Victorians said, ah, oh, no, we watch this. It's not a big deal. Yeah. By the time we're up to about our third or fourth story off the back of all of those responses, sure. I mean, they're pretty confronting. Yes. I'll tell you an anecdote. Yeah. There's a guy, a dentist. He's on the operating table. He's naked. He has the um, sheet over him. Uh-huh. The surgeon is standing above him mm-hmm. and says, hang on, is this guy private or public? And the guy who's still awake says, well, what difference does it make? He says, well, if you're private, you get me. If you're public, you get him and pointed to the um, registrar. So, it's, Ouch. That's yeah, right? terrible. So it's pretty, yeah. a pretty amazing stories mm-hmm. and that was just a reader. Um, and so what happened was over the course of that, 
the government had to eventually now come to the realisation that they had a problem, they had to admit it publicly, federal government's talking about reviewing it. Uh, so that's that's a definite pattern where people try to resist, yes. they try to downplay, yeah. they try to belittle and, and obfuscate and eventually, usually with these things, that doesn't work. By the end game, they say, yeah, we got this wrong, we've got a process, we're going to fix it and so on. So I'm not quite sure why they, that is still a tactic. Must be incredibly fulfilling to see some of those results and it's also really interesting to me that the very simple task, a very simple act of putting in, you know, share your stories with us elicits such a massive amount of feedback. Yeah, it does. It's one of the great things about digital publishing. Yeah. Um, because you have that direct link to your audience, you know, um, that you couldn't, there's lots of things you can do with an internet story that you couldn't do with a newspaper. I love my newspaper. Sure. I still love the front page. Yes. Still love seeing the posters yeah. on the street when you've got the yes. big yarn. Like it's great and does definitely make a difference. Mm. Um, but there's things that you can, the interactivity you can get with your audience online yeah. is tremendous. They can just type in a box and it comes to us directly. Fabulous. Which I think is really interesting. Matt, in the age of 5G internet, now that everyone can publish and, you know, in this age of the heavy fake news era, uh, which, you know, always makes me think of the um, delightful president in the US at the moment, um, how has this changed your job? Well, it's it's interesting. It's um, brought this new pressure to publish that we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So newsrooms were built around a once a day deadline. You'd watch the nightly news and they might have a yeah. story and mm -hmm. but you would have five or six hours yes. to follow that up to get it into print the next day. Yeah. And that's not all that long ago that that was the model. Mm. So now something can go out on the internet and everyone can be talking about it mm -hmm. and other outlets can be publishing it. Yes. And we have this pressure of what are we doing with this? Okay. But there have been, I think, enough problems with reproducing things that are incorrect that we um, have learned to hasten slowly. Uh, that's that's something that I think all media outlets are learning. Okay. And that brings me to the upside of all of this is that because of this terrible phenomenon of fake news and the bunkers that we've read about in Poland yeah. and Russia and yeah. the guys who made all the money sitting in their basements during the last election in America pumping out fake news and getting hits. Yes. That has brought from the audience a real demand for trusted news sources. Mm. So we have to meet that demand. We have to be producing stuff that's right yes. and accurate and then we'll be repaid with the audience coming to us mm -hmm. and subscribing to us and knowing that if they share what we tell them mm -hmm. or if they share, I mean, socially or at a dinner party or wherever, yeah, yeah. that they're on solid ground. Yes, you know? absolutely. Um, because the audience is now pretty hyper aware to it. So in terms of how does that change the job? Well, we're taking our time on breaking stuff to make sure that we're not part of the problem. Okay. And then in terms of being part of the solution, just making sure that we are absolutely putting forward the best stuff that we can so that people will trust us. So that accuracy question, which has always been at the heart mm of journalism is, is really just underscored in this current environment. It has to be there. The, um, you know, people used to malign internet news publishing is not wrong for long. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So 
but you, that's that's no good. Like that's not going to win. That doesn't win trust. People don't want to be reading no, your story. And then they come back an hour later and say, hang on, you, you what? <laughs> There's little, What's this? little resemblance to what I read an hour ago. That's exactly yeah. right. Okay. So we have to bring that discipline around that we that the industry has had in print where it had to be right because it can't yeah. be changed. Uh-huh. That's got to be there. So in the last five years, there's been a real journey, though, where it was if you weren't first to publish, um, you got one of the technical things is Google ranks on first to first there, sure. they're trying to go for the original source. Yep. Okay. Um, so when people were looking so for it, penalized on you'd that be penalised. Yeah. So when you were just outright chasing eyeballs mm-hmm. and, and didn't matter whose eyeballs, you just wanted the most of them as yep. possible. Yeah. Which most news publishers are moving away from. Um, that was a real problem. Yeah. Okay. And it got it got a lot of people into a lot of trouble all around the world publishing things that didn't turn out to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, before we started recording, we were talking about some of your website statistics around the recent George Pell verdict. Um, I'd love love for you to take us through that, you know, including where your traffic comes from, you know, Google searches, how this compared and how that compared to a usual week if in your life as a journalist there is such thing as a usual week. Well, yeah, every week is very different. Sure. But there are yeah, there are patterns. So we know that, you know, our traffic kind of peaks around about lunchtime and mm-hmm. and tapers off through the day. Um, it's a pretty standard looking curve just about every day. Yeah. But every now and again, it's not normal. So George Pell was a classic. Um, the Christchurch massacre was another. Yes. Um, the Burke Street attack was another. Yes. Um, the budget um, last night mm-hmm. was another. Yes. But you get these so you, where you get these spikes, and we watch that very closely. So a couple of things happen when it's a breaking disaster. Um, which is obviously always of interest, terrorist attacks or yeah. a natural disaster, people do come to us. That's part of that trust equation. Mm-hmm. So we see a, a big spike in the traffic from people just coming to our homepage. Sure, to then, so to typing find out that what, in. Yeah, yep. typing mm-hmm. in smh.com.au yeah. or theage.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing we see increasingly, and, and it was a huge slab of the traffic on, on Pell, which we discussed when we talked about doing this podcast. Yeah is from search and social. And to me, that's really, really important. That's people saying, I've heard something's happened with George Pell, so I'm going to look it up yep. on the internet. And then they get an array of news sources. Everyone's seen that. You get the little picture in the headline. Yeah. And they're choosing us. And they choose to come to us. Mm-hmm. And then on social, we can see this big chunk uh, of social traffic. It's almost all Facebook. But that's people saying... Um, I want to share this with my network. Yes. I want to share this with the people who I know. Yeah. And then when they, when they, people see it in their feed, they're clicking it. So they're trusting you as the person who shared it, but they're also sure. trusting also us. Also trusting you. So that's it's it is amazing. The traffic can be many multiples of a normal day. It, it's really, really, really massive. Mm. Um, the the spikes around Christchurch in particular were very huge. Yeah. And so that just underscores this thing where people still look to the traditional media companies in a very big way to give them that trusted news and they, they come at it across a, a range of options. In June this year, Matt, we know that the ACCC is going to publish a world first report. Uh, global regulators are also cracking down around social media. Take us through what you know is coming around, you know, how Facebook deals with 
news? Well, I don't know. I can say what I know is coming. Okay. But I can't. Oh, I'll tell you what but, I know is coming. There's going to be a lot of change. Yes. Absolutely. There's going to be a great deal of change. Uh, only this week, the government here, the federal government, has proposed quite significant changes to the way it deals with the platforms who distribute what they're calling abhorrent violent con content. Yeah. This is in response to the Christchurch massacre, sure. which was live streamed on Facebook. Yeah. And which took them an hour to sort out yeah. to get off. Yeah. And even then, only after the police directly contacted them and alerted them to it through a special channel that they have. So I think globally, that has turned out to be a real watershed moment. Mm -hmm. It's produced massive uproar all around the planet. Um, got a situation now where um, Elizabeth Warren and Rupert Murdoch both are calling for the same thing, which is pretty remarkable, which is a breakup of the tech giants. Yeah. So I, I think. What's happening is that people have come to the view that um, Facebook and Google, particularly through YouTube, but also through its search function, Twitter, and then uh, chat platforms like HN, are operating in a way that doesn't meet our expectation of how corporates should should behave. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little trite, but it's about that social license piece. Yeah, people are now saying to them, "This actually isn't good enough." I'm not certain, looking at the way that some of them talk publicly, particularly Facebook, that they quite understand that yet. No. That they've no. got a feel for the community anger, mm -hmm. which is what the politicians are tapping into. Yes. Um, Facebook's responses have been very procedural. Mm. Um, talked a lot about how their algorithms and their systems can deal with the problem, um, which when an, a person in the street in Christchurch says why couldn't you take this down? Why was this online? Why sure. did it keep appearing online? Why sure. is that okay? Mm. Um, I think they've been very slow to appreciate that. So what are we going to, what are the options? What kinds of things are we yeah. talking about? Right. Well, there's a question about whether um, Facebook and Google have too dominant a position in the advertising market. Yes. And whether that needs to be addressed in some way. Um, there's also the and Rod Sims is very clued on to that. I'm not quite sure how he's going to square that circle, but that's definitely in his thinking, so watch for that one in June. There's this question about whether they, the, they being the platforms, should be paying um, a more in a more commercial way, paying the content providers like media organisations mm -hmm. that they rely upon to help feed their feeds. You might have a view about that. Well... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we produce a lot of this, a lot of what they market on, mm. and um, don't get too much back in the other direction. There's a lot of conversations going on in that space, though, and um, you know, um, nine through its ownership by our mastheads, the Morning Herald and the Age, has a, a global first deal with Google, where they um, we we get a better arrangement out of them because we they know that the ads that are served on our stories can get a better response. So okay. um, there are things, there is innovation happening there. Uh, the other thing that is happening is uh, the, the way that they serve people's um, content up from uh, sort of unauthorised sources. Yes. I think they're going to have to be enormously more cautious about that. Facebook's mm -hmm. already talking about clamping down on live broadcasting. Yeah how they stomp out bad content on their sites, mm -hmm. even though it's not live. Uh -huh. I think how they do it, I'm really not sure. 
Yeah. I, I, there's going to be so little tolerance for it. Uh, I'm not quite sure what they do about that. YouTube has had problems with advertisers saying, "Until you can tell me yes. that my ad's not going to be on a beheading, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not there." No, thank you. Yeah, yeah, which is understandable. So look, all of that equals pressure, and all of it equals, mm. you know, a, a real attention to exactly how their business models work. So they're just under pressure. They are. I, I mean, I was really horrified to to read recently that. Um, I think it was Facebook and I should actually remember the source, but were, were giving advertisers the ability to um, to knock out certain demographics with advertising. So when they were when they were advertising housing, you know, they could knock out African Americans or other types of demographics which were, you know, talk I mean, talk about the lack of social license to operate. That that's just appalling. And on the other side, you know, we ran stories about how they, they actually allowed you to target people who are interested in right-wing material, like far-right-wing far yes. right yeah. material. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, they, I, I just get that feeling like they're not quite sure that, that they get it. No. Um, I'm not sure, though, this talk, and again through the ACCC process, mm. about whether they, there should be some level of an algorithm regulator, and I'm not sure... But that's necessarily a, a good idea. Mm. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with my cab driver the other day who was from Eastern Europe yeah. and has a very different view on how much you want government actually stepping in sure. to do these things sure. because, of course, people who live not in democracies are extraordinarily suspicious of the way governments yes. will seek to filter material if they yeah. get control of it. Yeah. And Google's had the problems with China. So I'm not sure that a regulator telling them how their algorithm should work is the idea. So my personal view is maybe more like look at outcomes and say yeah. that outcome, that's not meeting the community expectation and so you have a problem and well, you need to fix it. Well, and with the, you know, with the fast pace of a whole lot of these companies, regulations can't keep up. <laughs> you know, they're... That's, been, that's been used a bit as, um, well, that's probably true, mm. um, but that... They've been running and the regulators have been sitting in a chair. So yeah. I also think there's not been too much attention Any paid attention. to them. I was yeah. talking to a CEO um, about a week ago and that was their observation was that, you know, I made that remark about Facebook doesn't seem to be engaging with the level of outrage. Yeah. And they said, well, that's because they don't consider that they should be regulated and they haven't been regulated so they don't see the pattern of what happens in this environment. So I think... Mm. They're, um, they're really grappling with it. And I, yeah, I'm not sure that an algorithm regulator is the go, though. Yeah, no, I know. I would say one more thing, and that's that this this bill that the government has said they're going to force through this week, um, it looks very rushed. Um, you know, and we want, I think everybody wants, yes. the community wants yep. some greater level of sort of engagement from the media companies. And this law will jail people mm -hmm. um, if they, the executives at the companies, if yep. they don't take down content, take 10% of their global revenue. Yes. Yeah. Google. Yeah. It's like, a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Uh, um, but it's being rushed. They're jamming it. There was it was uh, released as an idea on the weekend. Mm. Um, we're talking on Tuesday, yeah. and the government wants uh, Wednesday. Sorry, and the government wants to have it through by Friday. Yeah. Not a lot of consideration in there, is there? No, Labor's saying they'll support it and review it mm. later. Yeah. 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 That's. 
um, concerning, unusual. Yeah. Matt, let's change tact a little bit, some slightly lighter questions. Over your long career, you've attended many press conferences with leaders who are on the front pages of our national papers or top of top of your website, if we're looking in slightly more recent terminology. We'd love to hear some of your favourite anecdotes. Sure. Um, you know, I was thinking about one the other day. I can remember heading into the um, election when Clive Palmer uh, won his seat and we did a press conference down in South Bank here, and it was one of the strangest things I've ever been to. He had a band, like a little bush band, playing, <laughs> playing a banjo, and um, he just was bombastic and refused to answer any questions. And I came away from it thinking, what on, what on earth's happened to our, <laughs> to our country? Um, and of course, he, he won a seat and he's back again this election. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was really something. Uh, I can remember, Tony Blair appearing in Melbourne, funnily enough, just after a, um, a, a, book, a book or a documentary had been published on him and his relationship with um, News Corp. Mm-hmm. And um, this was his first appearance in the world since he all the revelations had come out. Little Australia, we had him. Yeah. And so I went along to the um, Commonwealth offices and, and asked him about um, a lot of questions about News Corp. Okay. To the point where he had to say at one point, oh, he's keen, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was very polite and, and was fine and, and did his best to kind of answer what he could, I think, and then probably went out of there thinking, well, I wasn't really expecting that. Yeah. I can remember actually thinking back when I, when I first got into covering political journalism for the AFR, I can remember going along to a, a doorstop with um, John Brumby and actually being so nervous about the idea that I was going to have to ask a question. Yes. Um, that when he, and I did ask it, and when he was giving me the response, I was so nervous that my hand was shaking so much I couldn't take my shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> so, but of course, desperately trying to not uh, look like you have it all together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like everybody has their own approach to, to press conferences. Mm. Um, and that's always quite interesting. You know, Brumby was always late. I spent a lot of my time at State Rounds waiting for him. Busy guy, but yes. always late. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, most of the federal politicians are, are very polite and understanding and professional about things. I always remember, like, in the, uh, sitting in, we are in South Australia, and it was pretty warm, and um, Julia Gillard had, was standing and waiting for us to start, and a journalist from Sky News was mm-hmm. trying to tell her producer. Yes that the press conference was starting, but the producer was obviously bombarding her with what they wanted her to ask. Yeah. And she's saying, yep, 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 okay, yep, we've just got to, yeah, no, I've got that, we've just got to go. And Julia Gillard reached over and took her phone and, <laughs> and took it up to her ear and said, hello, it's, uh, it's Julia Gillard here. I was just wondering if we could start the press conference. <laughs> and then um, she smiled and handed it back and said, they hung up. Uh, that was pretty good. I had a problem too with um, Julia Gillard at another press conference actually where I was asking her a question and it had, um, I can't remember which vowel it was, it might have been the number six or it might have been the word pen. Or oh, we're having a, we've got was, a New Zealand story here coming, yes, haven't we? Yes, so I, I asked her three times and she was politely asking me to restate <laughs> the question and then I said um, that you know, I, I got it across that I was a New Zealander and what I was trying to ask her. <laughs> And she said, oh, right, and smiled and laughed and said hello to our friends in New Zealand and, <laughs> and, and on we went. So, yeah, I, I, it's 
doing those press conferences is always a crazy thing. Yeah. There's a, the real pros of them have their own little techniques and tips for making sure they get their question in. Sure. Lots of eye contact. Okay. And there's this, um, you know, one one thing that a very experienced uh, TV journal told me to do is to just when you sense they might be getting towards the end of their sentence, don't wait for the end and then be part of the, all the shouting. Okay. Just interrupt them and then, <laughs> and then say, oh, sorry, and then let them finish. Oh, but then and then they'll, they'll come to you, yeah. Oh. Which I thought was a really good tip. That is that good tip. That worked quite well. Yeah. Of course, you can't interrupt people all the time. No, you can't. And the TVs will get really cross if you keep interrupting their grab. So sure. You, but if you want balance to, to be strong. Yeah. yeah I like right. it. I like it. Matt, what are some of your biggest frustrations or everyday mistakes that people make? you mean from the business well dealing with us in dealing with you so corporates organizations wanting to get media coverage yeah. want to get their message across excellent right well they don't do their homework is my single greatest frustration okay so for a start no one should be ringing a newsroom after four to pitch something that's of not like uh -huh. urgent pressing interest yes um and you can make that doubly bad by ringing someone like me and asking what journalist covers a particular topic. Nobody does that. People do that all the time. Have a look at the paper. Their, their name's on the story. Yeah. Like it's literally on the story. Really? Really. They do it. Wow. Constantly. It's very, very, very irritating. Um, now, I know that PR agencies bill corporates um, for what they call quote marks follow-up. Mm -hmm. um, so they send out a press release to everybody on their mailing list and then they ring all those people and say, did you get my press release? Yes. It's horrifically annoying. Okay. Um, and it's of no value at all to the client. Mm -hmm. So I would say to those clients, if they get billed, to ask the PR person how many of those follow-up calls went for more than 30 seconds. Okay. Because most of them are going to be being told to rack off. Yep. Um, and the good PR people will know who the journalist is. They'll know what they're interested in. They will be able to have a conversation with them about it. And that's where you're actually adding some value. Um, another classic, though, and, and a lot of corporates make this mistake, mm. they announce a person is getting a job. Yes. And then you say, great, will they be in a picture? No. Okay. Do you have a picture? No. It's um, extraordinarily frustrating and happens at C-suite level. We need a picture. So if you are intending to be a C-suite person mm -hmm. or if you are a C-suite person... Or you're about to be announced. Go and get a professional photo taken yep. so that you can include it as part of the announcement because it's massively important to us. And from a, uh, there's another thing which I'm trying to do and which a lot of us are trying to do, and that's to move away from just photo after photo of middle-aged white guys and Yay. business pages. Yep. So if we're going to achieve that, though, mm -hmm. we need everybody... So everybody who's getting a job, the yep. diverse backgrounds, yep. the diverse genders and everything else, yes. we need the photos. Mm -hmm. it's, it really is very helpful. And it's, it's tougher for, I understand, like a, a woman wants to have the hair done, they want to look good, that's fine. But be, be a bit prepared and be a mm -hmm. bit proactive. Get a photo that you like or a series of them and, and off you go. I'd say that, that's a, it's a special bugbear of mine. Okay. And a little bit more for, for women who you're trying to profile? Well, yeah, for both. Yep. But it's, it makes a real difference for us. We will choose. It, it can determine yeah. the placement of the story, particularly in print. Okay. If we have a nice photograph to go with it, yeah, sure. your announcement of your position might get a better spot. Mm -hmm. 
because for layout purposes, we're always looking for pictures. Yeah, sure. Right? So sure. if we have a nice picture of the person who got the job, mm-hmm. everybody is going to be happier. So it's a very simple, easy win. It, it is, and really interesting that, that more people don't take that into, into account. Matt, that, covers re- that follows on really nicely to the next question that I wanted to ask you. In covering business, um, as, you, as you alluded to, uh, no, no great surprise, um, coverage is typically very male heavy. How do you consciously try to even the ledger? What does that look like? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, there's some more research coming from the Women's Leadership Institute of Australia later this week Mm -hmm. on this Um, and we in the financial press don't have a a great track record it's really true Um, it's partly a result of the environment we're covering it's partly a result of unconscious bias Mm -hmm. on our behalf as well yeah Um, and so all you can do is to really try and step back every now and again and look at whose photographs you're using who Mm -hmm. are we quoting Um, I still think you know, personally, I'm probably not paying enough attention to how many female sources are there in this, in our stories, in okay. our section. Okay. I haven't done a count back. Um, I, I'm, this is something that was raised with me during the week. So this is an exercise really? I will be doing. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things is looking at who the journalists are. Now, mm-hmm. roughly, I, I went and did a little health check for us. Half, roughly half my team are women. And um, they produce roughly half of the stories yep. and slightly more than half of the traffic. So okay. well done, ladies. Um, there is absolutely no reason why there should be more male journalists than female journalists covering no. business. No. Um, and we just have to work a little harder on making sure that we get the female voices out there. But it is one of the reasons why, like I said, I will choose a photograph of a woman who's been appointed to a high position as a way of helping make that happen because the more we do it, the easier it will be. Yes. And there's, you know, we've hit the 30% mark for female directors out there now. There's no shortage of people who are in a position. No. So the more we do it, the more comfortable they will feel about it, the less of a thing it becomes and it just becomes something we don't have to consciously push all the time. But as I say, I am aware that I think probably going to have to start paying a little more closer attention and saying to my team, this is something we should be trying to do, work harder. I would say we did um, make a conscious effort on our six-monthly economic survey to try and get some more female economists in there. Okay. And we absolutely have achieved that. Um, some of the positions on that economic survey are by dint of who they are. Mm-hmm. So it's the chief economist for the four big banks, for example. We sure. always go to them. Yes, so if the oh, four big banks, uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> so if the four big banks have appointed four men, we can't really control that. But amongst the other ones, yeah, we have we have been trying. Yeah. yeah, well, and I mean the thing is, in you know, in in this realm, you're never going to have somebody on a panel who is below par or who is not going to be highly credible. Yeah. Often it's just a matter of being con- well. I say just as if it's very simple, but of being conscious of it and perhaps looking a little harder. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, mm. and, and working. Working your contact base. If you if your contact book is full of only blokes, yep, probably not working hard enough. And that the women that this they're not alone. But um, that Women's Leadership Institute that Carol Schwartz runs has a tremendous database. The yeah, journalists they do. Use. Chief Executive Women has a database. Yes, yeah, they do. All the universities have databases. They do. ABC recently was uh, putting something together, That's asking right. women to nominate or yep. nominate others who are SMEs who can talk. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it, so it's all there. Yes. So it's there. There's no real excuse for us anymore. Um, obviously, if we're writing about a company and it's results day and the chief executive is a man, we're going to be quoting the chief executive in the same way as when we do Coke, we quote Alison Watkins. But, sure. You know, it's it doesn't mean that the whole thing then has to be all about men. Yep. And it is, I think it's it's on us really to push harder. I like it. I think that's almost my favourite thing that you've said so far, Matt. Um, I also think the tip for people to be cognizant of um, having had their hair done and wearing something fabulous when they know that an announcement is coming is is gold. It's really simple, but I reckon that is probably a, a major reason for people declining a request. Well, so wouldn't really it be good terrible tip? if you were primed to talk and you wanted to talk? Yes. And the business rings you up and wants to put you on camera. Yeah. And you can't, or you then have to scramble to get yeah. ready to do it. Yeah. So it's very, um, yes, it's, it seems like a very simple step to take to get you over the line. Yeah. There was an interesting point raised, um, someone raised with me about whether it should be a KPI inside corporates too, that with that the corporate PR people yes. have a KPI to make sure that they're putting forward the female talent. Yeah, absolutely. Think? I, I think it's, I think it's a good way to go. I like it. What do you think? Or would it be difficult? Oh, I'm turning it back on you now. Okay. Would that be difficult in the internal politics world around who's getting profile and who's not? Will some of the the male hierarchy perhaps get a bit cross that they're being not getting as much of the limelight as they used to? I think that enlightened people, blokes, will be okay with it. I think I would like to think that they will see the benefits to gender diversity or diversity in, in all its flavours and the fact that not everybody sitting at the table looks like them or is the same gender of them and the same background, you know, the, the good people appreciate that, that that adds more value to a business and is delivers a better result. So the good people, I think, will be just fine with it. Mm. Internal politics, of course, there will always be that, but I think it's a positive thing. And I think it matters. It matters out there. It does matter. Yeah, people want to see that that it can happen. That there's no, there's no conspiracy. Yeah. And I would think it is a. Um, I mentioned unconscious bias before, and I think that is that is what it is. Mm. I would read a story that only quotes male people, and not think, why is there only men in this story? It's not a KPI I'm thinking about really, mm. which um, you know perhaps should be thinking about. And pushing the journalists, and yeah. maybe not to change that story today because they don't have enough time, most mm. likely. Yeah. But if they keep doing it, to say, well, hey, what's going on with your contact base here? Absolutely. It reminds me of a podcast I was listening to yesterday where a psychologist, Adam Grant, was talking to a, a female American astronaut called Katie. So, you know, I remember. <laughs> but, but what I really liked about it was that she talked about her schooling and that she was really good at science, but it had never occurred to her that being an astronaut might be the way to go until she saw Sally Ride, the first female astronaut, and suddenly she looked up and she said, I see someone who looks like me. So now I, I started, then I started to entertain the idea that perhaps that could be for me. And I think, you know, I think that's a really poignant example and reminder. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Matt, we have spent a lot of time talking. I'd like to ask you one more question. In the last 10 years or so, and this really fascinates me, um, so, you know, social media has increasingly become central to the way that journalists 
work. And there are so many examples of this, but, you know, one thing that struck me, I was watching ABC evening news with my mum recently and, you know, Alan Kohler was on and I think he's awesome, but looked at the fact that his Twitter handle was on there. And I just, it just struck me that, you know, on ABC that that was a really uh, obvious example about just how prominent social media has become as part of a journalist's role. I'm interested to understand, you know, from your perspective, how that's changed all of your roles over the years. Yeah, in lots of ways in lots and lots of ways. So, I mean, the, the direct one is that if you're on social media and almost every journalist has got some sort of presence yeah. there, particularly Twitter, we seem to love Twitter. You, you do seem to love Twitter. Um, the, you're just so directly accountable to your audience. Yeah. Like they will call you out. They will say, this is hopeless, this is wrong. Mm. Why haven't you done this? Um, you'll get accused of all sorts of bias and all sorts of other things. Um, you also, on a more serious note, you know, some particularly female journalists get horrendously abused on there. Um, More so than men? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Yes, it's really bad. Yes. Why? Um, Well, the usual problems with women in public life on a social platform. Yeah, okay. You know, it's just really horrendous. Um, And my wife's a journalist and and some of the stuff that that she gets on email and so on is really very unpleasant. Um, But in a more positive sense, I think the accountability is good. You have a direct line to your readers. Yeah. And so if um, you've made a blue or there's a problem or people just want to have a discussion with you, you're there. Yeah. And that's that's really cool. Um, And, again, wasn't something you could do with the newspaper. You could write your letter to the editor. (laughs) I still get the odd ones, usually of a certain vintage. Yeah, yeah. But Uh but, um, it's an ability to directly talk to the writer of the story, the generator of the news, and we're accountable to our audience in a way that you weren't previously you can also see how everyone's responding to your story mm-hmm. once it's out and that can be a really valuable way of thinking how do we take this forward, how people, what do people think of it, yep. of its merits and yeah. where it should go. And it puts us all in contact with everybody else, you know. It's a great, it's a great thing. You've got the CEO of Telstra is there talking about the story that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that all parts of the equation are all there. And lots of lots of additional nuances to not, you know, days of old you'd, you'd read the story and the age or the fin and, and it would be static and that would be it. But to get all those additional nuances and flavours with the CEO from Telstra or wherever, adding their own skew or thought about it is is really interesting. Yeah, and then you also get the, it's, it's a tremendous source. Mm. You know, people are all photographing everything all the time and trying to um, make sense of what's going on. We, I come back to that earlier point about verification, like that's obviously massive for yes, us. Yeah. But in terms of on the ground accounts of what's happening somewhere or um, what a problem is, um, tech outages is a classic or, or people like <laughs> yeah. you're complaining at, yep. at whoever the corporate Absolutely. is. I won't name anyone, but, you know, it happens. Uh-huh. And um, our audience is massively interested in those stories. So yeah. when we see that flaring up, we'll, we'll do something and people love reading about it. Um, but you also, uh, there was an incident the other day in Melbourne CBD. So the first thing I did was to get yes. on Twitter, Absolute, right? Yeah, And Absolutely. there were people posting photographs and talking about it. And so it's a tremendous resource for us as well. Particularly mm. when we can't be everywhere. Yeah. Um, people in remote areas and 
and posting stuff on social so sure. you can talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. And and you guys get the hallowed blue tick on uh, Twitter, which is just, I think, speaks speaks massive volumes. Oh, <laughs> Matt, thanks so much. I, we could talk for another hour. Um, I really appreciate your insights. You've had lots of great stuff to contribute and I'm, I'm read it, uh, listeners are going to really enjoy as well. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Katie Talks podcast with me, Katie Bennett-Stenton. If you enjoyed this episode, please review me on iTunes to help others find this great content. I've got some excellent thought leaders coming up in the series. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I love feedback from listeners. You can find me at Katie B Marketing on Twitter or Katie Bennett Stenton on LinkedIn.